A players hire A plus players, B players hire C players. And I believe that. I've seen that play out a thousand times over because B players are too afraid that if they hire A players, they're going to be superseded by that. I think that's actually the best way to build a great team. Because if you can do those two things, we're going to do great things together. Welcome to What Unites Us, a podcast about building businesses meant to last. We're your hosts, Taylor Justice and Esther Farkas. We lead Unite Us, a technology company that connects health and social care. We became curious about the way other leaders develop, innovate, inspire, and lead to drive change. We've invited an incredible lineup of visionaries to share their experiences, whether they created a new industry, turned an existing one on its head, or breathed new life into an old brand. Why do some ideas stick and others flop? Where does grit come from? What kind of leaders create generational change? We're going to talk about all of this and so much more. Join us as we chat with some of the boldest trailblazers of our time on their failures, their wins, and lessons learned. We promise we're going to get real and have some fun because as entrepreneurs and business leaders ourselves, we know that being authentic, showing vulnerability, and remaining positive are keys to unlocking success. Today, we're excited to have Sam Allen from Salesforce join us to talk about his leadership style and what makes companies like Salesforce endure for the long run. Sam's a brilliant leader, entrepreneur, and this is going to be a lot of fun. For those of us meeting Sam for the first time, he's currently EVP and Global CEO for Tableau at Salesforce. He's in his eighth year at Salesforce and previous roles as EVP and CEO for Salesforce.org, SVP and CEO of Global Marketing, and VP of Corporate Development and Head of M&A Integration. What we're going to learn from Sam today is uh, a lot of his experiences, both coming from the military, time at Wharton Business School, going from a large software organization to starting his own company, and then going back to a large organization and the complexities that go with building a team, not only here in the US, but from a global perspective, and really understanding the leadership challenges and just general learnings that he has. We're super excited to have Sam. Hope you enjoy listening. Well, thank you, Sam, for joining the podcast. We want to jump right into it. We've noticed over the years that a lot of successful leaders have come from backgrounds that have challenged them to overcome obstacles that most people never overcome. But somehow these folks went a different path and were able to break through. For me, growing up, I uh, came from complex family environment, uh, you know, went through six divorces, came from rural Kentucky, being medically discharged from the army. All of those things could have given me an excuse to maybe go down a different path. And Esther, I'll just speak for you. You were born in a communist country, moved here in elementary school, not knowing the language or the culture. And of course, a lot of adapting while trying to succeed growing up. And for both of us, where we came from, rural Kentucky, again, hungry in the 80s for Esther, really colored who we are and our drive to succeed. So we've heard you talk about this in some of your other podcasts, but can you tell us a little bit about your origin story and for lack of a better term, how you went down a different path than maybe folks that you grew up with? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is great. Appreciate the time. So it's an interesting bridge. You know, I think I'll, I'll talk a lot about values and adherence to values as kind of the steadfast way to navigate your way through but. You know, my own origin story, I, I'm from very blue collar background. My father was a teamster, 
truck driver. I grew up in lower middle class, Kansas City, Missouri in the 70s. Very undervalued decade, by the way. And Agreed. I <laughs> started... Started working when I was 15. I mean, I, I, I was technically working when I was a kid. My dad mowing lawns and shoveling driveways. And my father had me and my two brothers out cutting lumber every fall. And it was a great childhood, but it was a, it had its rough, rough patches. And my father, unfortunately, was consumed by alcoholism. So I spent my teens dealing with that. And I think when you're faced with challenges, you kind of have to go back to the foundation of who, who you are. And what you believe in. And unfortunately, too many people take these challenges in the wrong direction, as you kind of alluded to. And you've got to kind of look inside yourself at some point and say, okay, what path do I want to follow? And that's kind of been a central decision-making criteria for me my entire life now is I look, try and look as far down a path as I can and say, is that the direction I want to go or not? Each path has its own set of challenges and rewards. You've got to kind of pick those. But I think what these tough times do, and this is even bring into the fact, you know, I was in the Marine Corps and all that, that they provide you with perspective. And it's interesting, Esther, I, you know, I talk about, I come from this kind of hard scrabble background, but I did grow up in the United States. It's not like I grew up in a third world country or in a communist run country. It's, it can be a lot worse. And I think that sense of perspective is so key in dealing with challenges and, and driving personal growth. And to kind of anchor yourself to that, that there's always a better more better world out there if you're willing to go pursue it. And, you know, my own personal mantra, and not everyone thinks this way, is, you know, you got to kind of go earn. And central to all my development and my backstory is, is work ethic. And at the end of the day, I'm just willing to work for what I want and what I want to get. I think that's critical. Yeah, I mean, I think that sort of double click on that concept of earning it. I think that's sort of what this type of background sets you up for, right? Is that you don't have anything to start, so you don't expect anything. And so you start thinking about how to get to the next, next level. And so you're not thinking, I'm sure when you're growing up, hey, I'm going to be an executive at one of the largest software companies in the world. <laughs> you're thinking, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And so you just maybe talk us through a little bit, sort of this step-by-step evolution that got you where you are and how far ahead in the future are you looking? Did, did you see this maybe? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you did see this for yourself. But also on like the work ethic piece, Sam, when did you realize that you had that? Because I think even as a 16-year-old realizing that your words are kind of on your own, was that like a conscious decision or was that something that over time you realized, oh, I have a different speed than maybe others? Even as you've excelled across your career, it sounds like that chip has never gone away. When did you realize that that was like a force multiplier for you where others maybe didn't have that experience and didn't have that drive? It's an interesting question, though, in self-realization. I don't think I realized that I had a advantage, I guess, in work ethic until well into my late 20s, early 30s. And probably tied to my transition out of the Marine Corps and into the civilian world where I would look around and be like, this is what you're complaining about. There's not enough milk in the kitchen. Give me a break. And just really focusing on my job and delivery. And I think part of it too was because I started my civilian career so late, my peers, by the time I joined the workforce, had had eight, 10 years under their belt and I was brand new. I had to play catch up. So I had to work harder. I just said this last week. I often say that I'm never the smartest or hardest working person in the room. That's not an indictment of either my intelligence or my work ethic, because I think both are formidable. But what I try to do is surround myself with people who have that same attitude of just steadfastness around work 
But going back to your question, Esther, I'd love to sit here and tell you I've got this grand vision and plan and that it was all mapped out. It wasn't. I was going to join the army and not go to college because my father said, I'm not going to pay for you to go to school. I didn't go to college. I don't think you need it. And uh, he came home one day and the army recruiter was in me. He's like, what the hell is he doing here? And I said, well, I'm going to join the army. You know, I'm 18 and that's what I'm going to do. And and the recruiter left and my dad wasn't exactly nice to him. My dad was in, had been in the Navy too. So it's not like he, you know, he and all his brothers were in the military. And my older brother at that time was in the Air Force Academy. So it's not like there was any anti-military. In fact, it was the other way around. But he just didn't want me joining the army. And I said, well, you're not giving me any choice. I'm not going to go work in the Ford factory. And so when I went down to the recruiter, I had scored very high on my ASVAB, the vocational battery test you take to join the military. They used to be compulsory. I guess they're not anymore. But he said, hey, we have this new program. If you stay in college, you spend your entire summer in the Marine Corps plus one week in a month. So it's kind of like an active reserve plus program at the end of which if you graduate, you get a commission, you can go spend a career as a commissioned officer in the Marine Corps. So I thought, well, that's a cool option. I'll take that. And the kind of core component of who I am is I make decisions really, really fast. And sometimes I pay for that, but generally it's worked out for me well. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend my life in the Marine Corps. So I um, did my four years in college, did my summers in the Marines, plus my one week in a month. I graduated and took a commission and off I went and thought I would just spend 20, 30 years in the Marines. That was who I was and it was very core to my identity. And I loved it every second of it. And I loved being a leader. And then six years later, decided to get out. And we can talk, we can dig into that later. But again, it's just it was just kind of a doors open and you kind of stick your head through. And does it look interesting on our side? Sure. Off I go. Right now, my oldest son is 18 and we're in the middle of looking at colleges and he's stressed out. He's like, I don't know what I want to major in. I said, you're probably going to change your major three times. And what you do in college does not dictate what you're doing in your life. It sometimes does, of course, but like just chill out a little bit and take advantage of everything that that offers from an opportunity perspective and just see what doors it opens. Cause you're going to be surprised at what you're going to find out as you go through that process. So to me, I don't have a grand plan. I don't know where I'm going to be five years from now. I literally don't either work wise or even where I'm going to be living, but I just kind of keep my head up for any opportunity that will pull up. And if it matches kind of how I'm feeling at that moment, then I'll take a look. That tracks with my experience as well. I thought I was going to be in the military for a very long time. My father was 30 years Air Force. I thought I was going to go down that route. But the couple things that I did take from the military outside of like the soft skills component is being able to deal with ambiguity and something that we're taught in the military that I know you mentioned on a previous podcast that no mission survives first contact. So the ability or finding opportunity in some of those situations. So I think you couple the drive that you had the ability to process information quickly, maybe faster than others, or kind of see all of the angles quicker than most. How has that helped you throughout your career, especially on that opportunity piece? Well, we mentioned perspective earlier. I think that's important. I think the other thing is the ability to process information very quickly and not get, but, but not get bogged down in the details. One of my favorite mantras is directionally accurate. And was kind of honed in you in the military. Like if you're under fire, you either need to attack through it or get the hell out of it. You, know, you can't just sit there and go through analysis paralysis. You just got to move, shoot, move and communicate, shoot, move and communicate, move, move, move. And that's kind of been what's in the back of my head. And as you do that, somebody has to keep their head about them. And that's just been a, a key component of my success. And what I often talk about in my career is you know the concept of triage and what is important and 
focusing on those priorities and getting those done first. And if you're trying to fix a, a twisted ankle while you're bleeding out, that's a, that's the wrong thing. So if you apply that in this in the corporate world, you know, if I have a very dire customer situation and this customer is about to leave my business and cost us millions of dollars, and I got someone chirping my ear about some administrative thing that can wait, I don't pay attention to it. Now, the communicate part is very important. What I don't do also is just ignore folks because A, that's just bad leadership and B, you've got to bring people with you on the journey. And part of my responsibility as a leader is to help mold future leaders. And so I want them to understand what's going on in my head so that they can help them develop. And so what I'll do in a situation like that is I'll say, look, I'm not going to respond to this right now. Here's why. And please understand there's higher priorities right now. And that's actually a hard message. A lot of you know, folks, there's a, just to be honest, there's a lack of intestinal fortitude, I think, in a lot of leaders to not deliver an unpopular message. And there's a fantastic, I don't know what her title is. Uh, she deals in, her name's Brene Brown. She's written some books. We've had her speak at Salesforce, you know, and one of her sayings that I just love is being clear is being kind. And that doesn't mean the message is kind. And so I've never had a problem with delivering unpopular news, but that's just how you move forward, right? Every decision you make, there's someone on the upside of that decision and someone on the downside of that decision. The important thing isn't to worry about the downside. The important thing is to explain to the people on the downside why you made the decision the way you did uh, so they can buy in, right? And so when I think about that concept of triage, it's what's the number one priority and then you know what's two through N priority. And how are we going to address those things? And that, that then leads to, if you do that in a, in a very smart way and you stick to that, then it also leads to things like investment decisions. So how am I going to invest my resources, whether it's capital or people or technologies or whatever, that's where the bulk of your investment should go. I think underpinning that, you do need to keep your eye and your head up a little bit on the long-term vision. There are times where in this triage environment, something will in fact be a really high priority, but if it doesn't tie to something you're doing from a long-term strategic perspective, your job as a leader is to point that out also. And so there are some times where things look like an emergency, but they really aren't because it's not a direction we need to go in the long-term anyway. That resonates, I think, a lot with Taylor and I. I think priority setting at any business is one of the key things that you have to do as a leader that if you're not doing, nobody else is doing. And so I've heard you on prior podcasts talk about sort of three values that are important to you. And they were integrity, dependability, and courage. And I think integrity and dependability are sort of, okay, like, yes, I'm running a business, I'm a leader. Those are words that we're maybe used to hearing in that context pretty frequently. And they're very, very important. That's why. But I don't hear courage a lot. And I thought that was super interesting when I heard you say it. So you talk to us a little bit about it. You started down that road a little bit. It's just delivering bad news, of course, that takes some amount of courage, even if you're a leader, even if you're used to it, because you know that there is going to be a reaction. What other things? How do you think about courage? And how do you think about that contributing as a leader to an enduring business model and pushing those boundaries, perhaps? Courage to me, when you're young, especially in the military, it starts off as the physical form, right? Can you stand up in the face of adversity? And adversity means bullets coming at you, right? <laughs> and lead your way through that. I'm here to tell you that moral courage is a lot harder to pursue than physical courage. And moral courage is only, and that, so I talk about that as a value, it's really on the moral side. I sell software. There's no physical danger in my life anymore, which is mostly a good thing. Sometimes you kind of miss that, that juice, but anyway, topic from another time. But the moral courage is, is the, the drive, the underpinning drive to stand up, 
make decisions. And, you know, many times the decisions are popular, right? It's like someone just wants someone to make a decision. And, you know, it's also about feedback and it's about speaking truth to power. And too many companies, and I've been in several, talk about values, but don't stick to them. This is one of the things that has endeared me to Salesforce and kept me here for so long is we believe in our value system. And we talk about our value system and our leaders go through leadership development where you spend time with values are most important to you because you've got to kind of anchor on something. And the important thing too, is that my values don't necessarily mean they're your values, right? That's fine. But what are the most important things that are to help drive and guide your decision-making? So the moral courage is, is also about defending your people and you making sure your people have the resources to do their job. Cause we ask a lot of our employees, especially through COVID, right? When everyone's dealing with a lot of personal issues, and what's going on in the world around us right now, you know, it's not fun. And then they come to work all day and there's a lot of demands from them. If people feel like they don't have the tools to do their job, you as a leader, it's your responsibility to, to, to get them those tools. And that means you have to go fight for them. You know, and any Salesforce looking at their company, there's a limited number of resources and they're going to put their resources, they think they're best utilized. And it's your job to explain to them why you should be one of those centers of investment. I see a lot of leaders in, throughout my career who don't stand up at that point and make, make an impassioned, but reasoned plea based in sound business judgment. They'll make an impassioned plea, but it's, it's not based in sound business judgment, or they'll make a sound business judgment plea that doesn't have kind of the the softer component to it. So that's where the, the moral courage really comes in. And I think a lot of it too is, is around feedback. I think it's mostly in the US, but I've seen it in other parts of the world. The lack of ability to give people feedback is kind of mind blowing to me because I want every employee to have a great career, you know, and have success, but we all have challenges. I have challenges. I'm not perfect. I have gaps, but you're often blind to them. And if people aren't pointing those out to you, then you can't grow as a human being. You can't grow as a person. I mean, that applies in personal lives as well. But um, too many leaders just don't want to take on that mantle and leave it to some process or some other mechanism to deliver that tough message. I'm content. I don't like doing it. No one likes to deliver that. But I am content telling someone, hey, here's where your gaps are. Here's where your strengths are. When my kids were little, I used to, like a lot of dads, coach baseball and all that and soccer and I remember going to a clinic and they said, you know, you need to give a feedback, a feedback sandwich. You tell them something good and then you give them the feedback and you tell them something good again. So you start on a high note and end on a high note. And I thought that was pretty good because in the Marine Corps, it's just basically the meat part of the sandwich. You know, you're fucking up. Don't, you know, don't do that anymore. No carbs in yeah, the Marine Corps. Yeah, you are Corps. doing nothing right. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah. Grab some earth. Anyway, that was a, how to teach kids t-ball or coach kids t-ball. And I use that now. And so it used to be, you know, one of my learning thing was I was less empathetic and I would give people feedback, but I'd kind of give them just the feedback part. And that doesn't land as well. And I started doing this kind of feedback sandwich. I'm like, wow, this works a lot better because people are, you know, they're not just taking it like, oh my God, this guy's got a problem with me. It's, hey, here's what you're doing really well. Here's what you need work. And here's what you could doing well. And let's talk about next steps. And so it goes back to that communication thing I mentioned earlier. But again, that all takes moral courage. Like you've got to find that within yourself to do that and recognize that it can be self-serving because if you make the people around you better, they're going to make you better. If you keep that in the back of your head, that'll help. Well, I think that's really good advice too, because when you have someone that is a top performer and especially with an organization that is trying to grow, I mean, we see it with our organization around a thousand people. I can only imagine an organization like yours, that's 70,000 plus. 
across all your different business lines, the ability to level up and bring those leaders or those maybe junior leaders or folks on your team to a level where they can kind of backfill your role so that you can have that view of where we're going strategically. If you're an individual performer and you're not doing that, then everything, the buck stops with you and you're then going to become the bottleneck. So I think if you're going to build high performing teams, usually those high performers also want that feedback of how can they get better and how can they continue to advance and perform. Can you talk a little bit more about how specifically with your team, you talked about context is very important of how you make decisions because maybe they don't have all the information and they only have a sliver of it and it's just not making sense to them, but you give them the context of why you made that decision and this is the route that we're going to go. Can you talk a little bit more about those team members, especially around scaling? Because if you're going to build an enduring business or the largest software company in the world, you have to make sure that you're promoting but also advancing those individuals so that they have those skill sets again, so you can get to the next level. Can you talk a little bit about maybe that growth process through your career of how you've had to help those team members and provide that feedback in a constructive way outside of a kind of like the sandwich that you mentioned, but how are you always continuing to progress so that you can get to that next level, both for your own organization, but for those leaders as well to go take on other roles within the company? Well, everything always starts and ends with people. So if you're not investing a material amount of your time there, whether you're a leader or an individual contributor, if you're an individual contributor, you got to invest in your peers. And I, as a leader, invest in my peers. Like I spend time every day of every week reaching out to my peer group, right? Because that's how, even in a company of our size, that's how things eventually get done is based on the people part and those relationships that you create and the network that you build. So you have to invest in, in the people piece. For me, don't no, no, sound like I'm bragging, but I've, I've built a lot of high-performing teams. And you know, if someone told me once that you have to always be looking out, there's a saying in sales, ABC, always be closing, which I believe in. But the other thing, I, I'm always looking for great people and I'm always recruiting. And I've built teams and I've adopted teams, right? So sometimes you move into a role, especially at my level, you move into a role, you've already got hundreds of people working for you, right? And so finding those diamonds in the rough is really important. And then when you find them, invest in them. And another mantra that I go by that I didn't create, I've just heard it is A players hire A plus players, B players hire C players. And I believe that. I've seen that play out a thousand times over because B players are too afraid that if they hire A players, they're going to be superseded by that. I think that's actually the best way to build great teams. And that's what I mentioned earlier when I said, I'm never the smartest or hardest working person in the room because I want to hire people that are smarter than I am and work harder than I do. Because if you can do those two things, we're going to do great things together. I think that's really important, especially with maybe folks that are listening that are starting their own businesses and growing, or they're already part of a big organization or they took over an organization. When you have that B player and you identify it, walk me through how you've dealt with that over your career. You hear a lot of hire slow, fire fast, or when you find somebody that isn't maybe the right fit. You know when you know, and most people sit on that for quite some time, maybe longer than they need to. Can you just walk through if you have your own process or when you identify that, okay, maybe this is a B player, are you trying to coach them up or are you trying to move them to a different part of the organization? If someone isn't performing well, you really need to dig in and understand why. There's usually a root cause. I mean, the person got through an interview process and was part of a team, right? And generally what you find is, this person was performing and then it degraded over time. So why? And it's either an incentive, it's a personal situation, they're not learning, they're not growing, they're bored, whatever the case may be. 
these people have intrinsic value. And when you're and lucky enough to be in a company like Salesforce where we're growing, my answer now is let's understand why this person might not be performing. And then once we understand that, come up with solutions to, to help solve for that. Because there's a billion studies out there about how expensive it is to terminate somebody and have to rehire the replacement and retrain and onboard and enable and all that. If you, you can spend 10% of that energy and time and maybe get that person back where you need them to be. But through that conversation, what I have found generally is that folks are like, I, just, I don't like doing this anymore. I'm bored. I need a different role because I'm trying to take care of my mom. And so my approach now is, is there another opportunity? And sometimes the job just isn't a fit, right? It's just not a fit. And so is there an opportunity for us to put that person in a different role, give them a different set of responsibilities? And sometimes it's the reverse of it where they're like, this isn't challenging enough for me, right? It's like the classic student in school that's really smart because bad grades. And so, okay, what other projects can we give you? That's the bulk of it. There are absolutely cases where someone just isn't performing and you've got a, you know, you've a set of tactics you can follow to help correct that. But generally my approach in almost every case is, trying to investigate a little bit about why we're in the situation we're in. I will go back to that comment about ABC as a simple map for employee performance. You need a lot of B players. You don't want every single person to come in thinking, I'm going to be the president of the company someday. And that sounds a little odd, but if it is, and you have everybody trying to figure out how they're going to get there and not doing their job, you need a lot of people who are just coming in, doing solid work. They're happy to do that. They deliver, they perform. They're not the people at the high end of the right that you want to maybe promote someday and continue to invest in from a career perspective. But these are people that are really important. And when you get to 80,000 people in the company, you have a fair amount of those folks. I like to think that Salesforce, because of who we are, our hiring process is pretty thorough and amazing. And we have just a ton of amazing people. But if you get down to like the C and the D performers, that's where you have to really start spending your managerial time to understand, okay, why are these people in this position? And I'm lucky enough at Salesforce that we don't just don't frankly have a lot of those. And I'm not just saying that. Um, to get hired at this company is really challenging. I think we get like a million and a half resumes a year. It's a very intense process, as with a lot of technology companies. So we don't generally have to deal with low performers. But of course, they do exist here and there. And I deeply, deeply believe in diverse teams give you more value. And I mean that diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of opinion, there's the obvious things around ethnicity and background and all that. And those are important too. But you also want people to just think differently than you do. They may look the same, but how do they think and how do they solve problems? When I focus on teams, I try and keep that lens in the back of my head too. And the last few roles I've had are all global. I, I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I have a global organization. And if I have a, an American mindset, that's a mistake. I've built teams in Europe. I've built teams in Asia Pacific that support the global because there's great, sharp, amazing people in those regions that we should invest in. So constantly keeping that in the back of your head that do we have the right mix of people? Do we have enough underrepresented minorities? Do we have enough females? Do we have enough young people? Do we have older people, right? We need that full kind of Benetton ad for those of you who understand what that means, yeah. <laughs> a mix of people to really solve problems well. That's an important thing also. That goes again back to the moral courage thing is I may have a great candidate for a role or a great candidate to invest in a new set of responsibilities, but does he or she or they look exactly like everybody else? And are we doing the right thing there? And so that is another kind of moral courage statement. You got to adhere to those values. I, I think that's really important part of building, building excellent teams. 
Sam, I really appreciate the dialogue here. And we have just a couple more questions for you. Would love to learn a little bit about the differences between being in a very large organization that has been established, but always growing to starting something from scratch and kind of the differences there or the similarities of what you've seen of building a business that can grow and be around for a very long time executing on their mission. I started my own business. I actually co-founded it with two of my business school buddies. So it wasn't even my idea. Like I'm not going to sit here and take credit for it. It was uh, one of my idea from a friend of mine, but we all worked very well together. Those schools are very intense and it's a lot of project based. And we realized that among the three of us, we all had surfaces covering each other's gaps. And so together we were a really strong unit and always talked about starting a business together. And we just, okay, let's come up with the idea, which isn't, isn't easy. So we started our own company and went through over a couple of years, went through several rounds of venture financing. We have 2,500 people in my division. You know, it's an 80,000 person company, global in scale, billions of dollars of revenue annualized and all that. The other thing that I found, I, I tell this to people when I, in my past, I've done a lot of startup advisory. I don't do it anymore. I'm just way too busy with my day job. But when you work at Cisco or Salesforce or Apple or Google, you can get any meeting you want. And when you walk into the meeting, you walk in with that brand behind you and you throw your business card on the table and people are react. What I often tell folks to bring them down a notch is they're reacting to the business card. The name on there is irrelevant, right? And when you start your own company, your name is what you have to go create the brand around and it makes it much, much more challenging. It's hard to get meetings. It's hard to get people to listen to you. You're a small company and you're fighting usually much, much bigger entrenched people with a shitload of resources. And you've got to find that definitive competitive advantage that you have. And it might be speed. It might be better technology. It might be better customer service, whatever it is, and really drive that and put a lot of your effort behind that competitive advantage because you just don't have all the resources of a large company. Even recruiting, like I mentioned earlier, we get a million and a half resumes a year at Salesforce. Like we have our pick of the litter across any type of role we want. When you're starting your own company, it's like, why would anybody want to come work for you? Yeah, right. that's right. Especially in the early stages. I mean, we started in a garage. It was in my garage here in San Carlos and it was three of us working on a picnic table. And when you try to recruit somebody, they're like, you want me to go where? I'm going to meet you in your garage or meet you at a coffee shop. Or, <laughs> you know, right. That early lift is really, really hard. You know, Over my last 10 years or so, I've been presented with several opportunities to go be the CEO of an early stage startup. I'm like, I'm just not going to do that again. I've done it. I feel like I've checked that box. But I don't want to go expend the energy that it takes to get from that three, five, 10 people to 100 people. That is a completely different kind of muscle than managing at a much higher level. Well, I feel like we could dig into that and it'd be a completely different podcast. That's uh, a whole show. That, that's like very good information there. I lied. I'm actually going to ask another question before our last question, because you said something in the very beginning that triggered a thought for me, which kind of goes to the concept of it's hard to be a really good leader if you're not a really good follower. But for those that are listening that maybe haven't started their own business and haven't understood how some of those decisions are made going into Salesforce. What did you learn from that experience when you had to make all of the decisions and everybody's looking at you compared to where someone else was making decisions and you were part of a bigger org? Well, the first thing I learned was once you get two people in a room, there's no buck stops, right? It's like, it's easy to say that. And I just said it a couple of minutes ago, but you have to collaborate. I talked about how the three of us who started this company were all very, very interlocked. But when you get into it, you have differences of opinion. 
And I would often style myself as a managing director, not a CEO, because the three of us really had kind of equal vote in what we were doing, especially in the technology space. It's a different world than a lot of other technology, than a lot of other industries. It is a very collaborative environment. Now, there are certainly companies where it is purely one person founds the company and they're like, this is what I'm going to go do. I mean, Elon Musk is a great example of that, right? But for the most part, you've got to lead more through collaboration. And going back to what I mentioned earlier around communication, getting people on the go of the journey with you is really important, even in a really small company. All right. So we started this podcast to try and understand what makes companies endure and what are the things that really make a sales force a sales force. And so we like to ask to wrap up, what is it, do you think? Is it the product or is it the people? Well, first and foremost, especially in the technology industry, you got to have a great product. You've got to be an innovator. You've got to constantly change. Salesforce started Salesforce automation engine and was excellent at it. And if we had just done that, we'd probably still be a successful company, but one one hundredth the size we are today. So you have to constantly innovate and you've got to make your customers successful. That's how you make the product sticky is they got to love it. They got to need it and want you to invest more. Like I go into customer meetings and they're like, what are you investing in next? And that's the conversation we have, which means the product is very sticky. So investing in customer success and having them part of your, I talked about collaboration. We have advisory boards where customers come in and tell us what they think about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. And we listen to that because if you don't, then you're kind of blind to what's going on in the market. So that adherence to customer success is, is super key. We talk a lot at Salesforce about trust in, in all its different forms. Uh, as the original cloud company, people have to trust that their data is protected. And so that's an important value that we keep, number one. But it's also, and then you get to the people part. And you've got to hire and retain great people. Obviously, Sam, thank you for your time. It's no wonder why Salesforce and Tableau are doing so well, having great leaders like yourself that are leading great teams and coaching folks up. And I think you were absolutely spot on. Having great product tied to great people is critically important to having long-lasting brands and long-lasting organizations. So can't thank you enough for your time today and all your insights. Hey team, thanks for tuning in today. We want your feedback. Who should we talk to next? What questions should we ask? And what do you want to get out of this podcast? How can we get better? Email us at podcast at unitas.com. Let Taylor and I know what you think, and we'll see you next time.